0: Thank you, Donnie. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn you back to uh, the book of Second Corinthians, chapter seven. And uh, today is going to be a, a a very, for many of you, will be a key lesson in 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 dealing with people. And uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is is really a glimpse of what uh, I'm going to try to show you and, and teach you. Uh, when we get into the uh, uh, people ministry here after the first of the year, but it's stuff like today that I think it's uh, it's invaluable. And yet, you know, it's some of the most p- best practical material that you're ever going to find anywhere in the Bible for your life and my life. Especially, you know, in our church, we have a lot of young families, we got a lot of couples with young kids, and um, uh, the material today that's found in this passage here and, and all the ramifications of it. Uh, I think they're invaluable. And uh, there's a real attack today uh, on the family. And the family uh, is fractured in in this country. It's broken. It's busted. And uh, if anybody should be the model for what a family should be, it ought to be Christianity. And unfortunately, in most cases, Christian families are just as bad off and as as broken as as the unsaved ones. And, uh, you know, last week we saw uh, another real practical side to the ministry, and uh, we saw it through Paul's own life, which uh, which was incredible. I told you last week I always enjoy learning about from Paul. And uh, and we saw how he faced all the indifference of God's people that was in the church at Corinth. You'll remember that we've had many, many lessons on this, and we've come. I've really enjoyed not only 2 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians. Uh, I think that for anybody who really wants to learn those two books, that There's so much material there. But you remember from our previous studies that we saw how this church had gotten away from the Bible. Two basically aspects to them kind of falling by the wayside. They become a very carnal church. And Paul talked about it being filled with spiritual babies. And they're arguing and fighting and frustrating each other and disputing with each other uh, all over everything. I mean, it's incredible. At the same time, they have gotten away from the Bible doctrinally. They're way off base. And uh, just about every important issue or subject that you're going to find that the church needs to have to be effective, they, they, they got it messed up someplace. And he writes them uh, in 1 Corinthians a very open letter, a very, uh, a very honest letter, and a very hard letter. I showed you when we come through it that, boy, he doesn't spare anything from them. Chapter by chapter, he flat just lays it on a line to them. And he writes them, in a, like I said, a very hard book. And chapter by chapter, he confronts what they're doing wrong. And to put the whole story together, it doesn't really tell you where or when, but at some point, the church responded to Paul we're going to talk about this today. Uh, they, they, they worked it out. They, 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 what happened is what always happens when people follow the biblical process. They got the problem solved for the most part. We find that the church repented of its mishandling just about everything, and they basically got back to the Bible, most of them. And this is where then a book of 2 Corinthians comes in. And in Paul's second letter, 1 Corinthians, he chews them out. 2 Corinthians, once they repent and come back and want to do what's right he then writes chapter by chapter showing them how to get back online with ministry and he begins to teach them how to be right in the ministry that god has called them to do it's an invaluable for us today it really is i've told you many many times the great contrast between the two books and you're going to find that in christianity today not only are churches come in these two categories but most christians do Many, many churches fall into the category of 1 Corinthians. Worldly, I mean doctrinally impure, I mean got every issue going as you can, get nothing done for the Lord. And then you find some that uh, get it together and and do the job that God has called them to do. But you're going to find, as in any church, uh, not everybody embraced Paul in a favorable way with what he said and what he told them. And there was an element of indifference that still existed in this church that we see as he starts to come through 2 Corinthians. Not everybody was happy with Paul. And one of the things you learn by that is uh, you can have the best intentions and try to help people the best you can. But at the end of the day, not everybody's going to be happy with you. You're going to find in dealing with people that people want to, when they first come to you, they want to fix their problems They'll talk about how bad they are, sorry they are, how they want to get out of what they're in, and all of those things. And they'll carry that thought right up to the point where they have to face the real hard decisions of what they've got to change in their life. And then you're going to see where once it was their problem, now it's your problem. And uh, just as this church got mad at Paul because he tried to help them, one of the things you want to learn in dealing with people, people will get upset with you when you try to help them. It's just the way that it goes. And, uh, you know, and we saw last week how biblically he dealt with it, which I think is a great example for us. And I, in, in, in verse 2, uh, it was a great concept. He said, I've not defrauded any man, I've not wronged any man, and I've not corrupted any man. And he says, simply, I've just given you the Word of God and preached you the truth. And he demanded some things of them. He said in verse 4, with great boldness of speech, and he commanded them to receive him and what he's saying talked about all of this last week. Boy, it set a really good example for us in what we need to do. We saw also, and I think this is very important, the motive behind uh, him dealing with them. He loved them. He cared about them. And he's frustrated with them because uh, even though many of them have done well, there's still some that know better that are not doing what they need to do and he's burdened uh, over their wasted life and they're not reaching their full potential. You know, I don't think a real guy in the ministry or a gal in the ministry, I know there's nothing you can do about it and I know that uh, there's nothing you can't do for people that they have to do it themselves. But uh, there's never a time, I mean, there's times you have to let it go and you have to let people go and they have to go do their own thing. But there's never a time, if you're a truly... Love the ministry and love people. There's never a time you don't want to see people do right. Uh, and, and that's where Paul's at. He wants these people to do right, even though uh, he knows that probably uh, most of them are not going to do what they need to do. And in all of that last week, I showed you how to keep it very simple uh, when dealing with people. And these are where the principles come into your life that you can really use them. Hey, people will frustrate you beyond belief. And uh, much like they did in the Corinth with Paul, especially when uh, it's really good people. I mean, you expect idiots and, and, and people who are worth, aren't worth anything, you expect them to wind up being worthless. But you don't expect good people to do it. And uh, I don't want anybody to do it, but I in, in, in the world, it's not a perfect world in any stretch of the imagination. And there's going to be people who, are, who grow up worthless, who stay worthless, who are ever going to do anything for God. Then you have people that have really good potential, people that you see in them great things that they could do. And I use the example much like a parent last week. You know, a parent sees things in their kids or a school teacher they see things in their students, but they just can't ever reach that person uh, to get it done. And that can be very, very, very frustrating, especially, as I said, when they're good people. And in dealing with people, that's always something you have to be careful of. I gave you a great principle last week. And it's something that uh, I hope that you took to heart and you're going uh, to use it. And it works in every aspect of your life. And that was the great principle that in life, you never focus on what you don't have. You focus on what you do have. That, that'll work in so many areas of your life. If you're not careful, you'll get to the point where you get so close to it that you can actually, in ministry, lose your perspective. It's especially true when you deal with your own family. And every family has issues. I don't ever met a family that didn't have problems. My family uh, back in Ohio, you know, we pretty much worked through all our issues and gets along fine now. But we had our issues just like every family does. And what happens many, many times is families get really, really uh, to the point where it's hard to hold them accountable. And what happens is you start cutting the principles to fit the problem instead of holding the problem accountable to the principles. I'll say that again. You start cutting the principles to fit the problem instead of holding the problem accountable to the principle. That's never good. And, uh, and another great principle I gave you is is the fact that you never want somebody to do right more than they want to do right. And that'll kill you every time because you once you want somebody to do right so bad, if you don't keep it in the perspective, that person uh, who doesn't want to do what's right, you'll start making exceptions for them, cutting the corner's for them, and uh, it, it, it'll never work. When you have to start making excuses for people, you're headed in the wrong direction. And the principles of the Word of God is what we always should use. I always do two things when I deal with people that are frustrating people. I always do two things. One, I always leave the door open. I've had people that uh, came to church and, uh, you know, had problems, didn't want to do what was right, and uh, went back to the world. Uh, I always leave that door open. Because I know that sometimes the first go around doesn't, it wasn't for them to get what they need to get. Sometimes they got to get lower than they were when they came before. You know, as, as old Mel used to say, sometimes you got to get so low in life that all you can look is up. And maybe they haven't hit bottom yet. So you never close the door. And no matter how frustrated they are, how much they take advantage of you, or what they don't do right, you realize that that's what people do. And you never, you, you always leave the door open. But then you also, the second thing, and this is vitally important, you also leave the ball in their court. You don't chase people. Uh, Courtney was telling me uh, last night, I asked her if her sister had found a church in Chicago. And uh, she had to, went to school there in Chicago. And she, she said she tried out about 30 churches and she couldn't find anything. She said the ones that believe the Bible were all screwed up someplace else. She just couldn't find one. And she told me, she said, you know what? She said, you tell us all the time, and we know, I know most people don't believe you, that there isn't any good churches out there. She said, she's in Chicago with how many millions of people. She's been to 30 churches, and she can't find anything that does the Word of God the way it's supposed to. And I, w- I was talking to her about it, and when I asked her, I said, uh, you know uh you know as she's coming home here this next week and it was it was really good to uh uh to find out that she's going to be back with us but uh, she said you know what she said that just she just couldn't find anything uh that was out there that would give her uh, what she was looking for and and that's the way it is in in most cases and uh, you know you find a situation where uh you you get into those things and you always got to leave the ball uh in their court And you you, you always got to say, hey, look, maybe you get out there and you find something or you can't find something. And then it comes back and God brings you back to where you need to get the things done. And uh, and it's a thing where that's exactly what you find. Not that her daughter is not doing what's right with the Lord. She is. But it's a thing where she just you can't find it out there. And, uh, you know, you got to stand on the book. You don't run after people. And uh, she was telling me that uh, um, that when she went to these churches, they had a a visitor card that you filled out, and you were supposed to drop it in the offering plate. And uh, she didn't she didn't fill it out. She's smart enough to know that that's a that's a that's a deal where when you fill it fill it out, put the put your name on it, drop it in the offering plate, then they'll come visit you. And she didn't want anybody coming to visit her. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why pastors think, and it's been this way forever. For us that has been around for a long time, you know, we've been in other churches where you had one designated night that that was visitation. You got these stack of cards, and you went out and you tried to ask people why they wouldn't come to church, and or they visit one time, you know, and then you come by and try to invite them back. Now, in the day and age that we live in, going at somebody's house when it's dark and knocking on the door is a good way to get yourself shot. Uh, I look at it this way. If you liked what you heard today, then you'll come back. If you're looking for truth, you'll come back. If you're not, me coming over is not going to fix it. I was telling her I've been in guys' houses where I would knock on the door and go in and I'd sit down and I'd say, well, I, And he's watching television. He's worked all day. He doesn't want to be bothered with some goofy preacher here that's, you know, and I'm sitting to him and saying, you know, well, we really like to have you come back. Yeah. Mm. And I even had one guy walk over and turn a TV up. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how stupid this is. How stupid this is. You don't chase people. You know, you try to help people. But at the end of the day, it's our choice whether we do what's right or not. But So you always do two things. You leave the door open, but you always leave the ball in their court. And then we saw last week we ended with this, and I thought this was a great thing. The coming of Titus. And I talked about how that you focus on not what you don't have, but what you do have. And we, we showed you how that that's the people that God puts in your life, your fellow soldiers. Uh, the real comfort in ministry is the people that God brings to you who stand with you and have the same heart, the same goals, the same mind. You're co-laborers. It's really the key to a successful ministry. You know, I, 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 I never judge a man's ministry by, uh, by, by what people say about him. I, I know there's, I've heard people all my life talk about other pastors, and they say, well, I don't like him because he did this, he did this, he did this, and he did, this, and he did that. And I know that that's all relative to your situation to it. And I know also that, you know what, you could find as many people out there that say bad things about me as you do about some guy over here. So I never judge a man's ministry by what people say about him. I never judge a person by what other people say about him. I always judge them by what they build. And when you have a ministry where somebody's building people and people are getting turned out and people are getting uh, and growing in the Word of God, then there's something going on there. You get a church where it's dead, where nobody's growing, nothing is happening. This speaks for itself. I told you last week, I don't define people because people always define themselves and ministries always define themselves. I mean, you can find something negative about anything in life. I mean, this guy guy won a, you know, $600 million in the lottery last week. You, it's hard to find something negative about that. But I'll tell you something negative about it. I didn't win it. <laughs> you can find <laughs> negative in anything, you see. So that's just what you got to deal with. You're looking for people, and the real comfort is, is men like Titus, that, that they all have the mind of Christ. And that's what really uh, we focus on. That's what God really gives us. Now, today, uh, uh, yet another great concept for us to learn Uh, that continues on with what we really saw and read last week. That's why I took a little time to give you a little cohesiveness to it all. Uh, In the next passage we're going to read, the next couple of verses, uh, yet another set of principles that will help develop you now, uh, and you can put in your toolbox for using them later. And I I always get excited at Christmas time because Sears always has really good deals. I've never bought one because I'm smarter than that. But I love these 1,000-piece Craftsman mechanic tool sets. You can spend up $200, and you get a table with wheels on it. Got little drawers in it. It's got a big chest that sits on it that opens up. It's got drawers in it and a 1,000 tools. You could fix any car. You could change any spark plugs. You could change out a muffler. You could dig off the engine apart. You could do whatever you want to do. Nothing is more impressive than to me to look at and to see, wow, there is a complete set of craftsmen, m- mechanic tools on a cart, with a chest, with drawers, with every tool you could ever want for $299. That, to me, that, that's a, I love those things at Christmas. You know why I'll never buy one? I couldn't do anything with those tools. <laughs> it's nice to look at. But you take those same tools and you give them to a mechanic. You give them to somebody that knows what they're doing, man, they can fix anything they've got. In churches with people, once they get saved, my job is to give you the tools to do the ministry. My job is to make you a master mechanic with people. My job is to, what, this morning and every time we meet, and certainly when we get into our little sessions, when we get into the first of the year, my job is to give you the tools that you need. My job is to take the Word of God, break it down, which like I'm going to do on New Year's Eve, break it down, cut it up, give you the pieces, show you how to use the tools, and then let God bring you up and train you up that you become a master mechanic. You know, cars break down, people break down. Tires wear out, people wear out. Spark plugs get fouled, people get fouled. And, and there's no real difference to a mechanic that opens up, the, uh, opens up the hood and looks in there and sees it immediately. I open up the hood and say, there's the problem. What is it? There's your engine. <laughs> That's the problem. It ain't working right. They see things. I want to teach you how to see things when it comes to people's life. Then I want to give you the tools that you can be a master craftsman when it comes to fixing what breaks in people's lives. That's what we should do. That's our job. And that's why that messages like today, messages like last week, as we're coming through this book and I've been talking about the principles, that's what it helps you to do. Now let's read today, chapter seven, verses eight and nine. It says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice that ye were not made sorry, but ye sorrowed uh, to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Father, we thank you and praise you now for the Lord Jesus. Pray your blessings upon us today as we come to your word and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For the sake we ask it, amen. Now, last week, last week we saw Paul confront and demand that they receive him in what he says with very boldly. He held them accountable because he loved them and he wanted the best for them. Now, today we'll see how this style of biblical ministry is always the best way to go. We're going to make some applications today. We're going to take what Paul did and we're going to see how we can use it. This will work in a church because, in a work in a church, you train people. And as you train people, like I talked about earlier, part of the training is giving them the tools. But you got to get people to the point where they want to do with the tools what they're supposed to do. I, I, I can do a lot of things. I can. God's given me the ability with the Bible that I thank Him for every day. I can do a lot of things with the Bible. But I tell you, there's one thing I've never learned. I can take a man or a woman, I can teach them the Bible and give them the tools to make them uh, be a great craftsman. But I've never figured out, and probably never will, how to get that same young man and young lady to want to do it. See, I can't go across that line. If they don't have the desire to do it, I can't, I have no tools in my toolbox that makes you want to serve God. None at all. Uh, And you don't either. And that's where you got to be careful because if you're not careful and you realize there's a line you got to draw, then you keep stepping over that line all the time and that really just, we'll see it in a few minutes here, makes the situation worse. And today we'll see how this style of biblical ministry is always the best way to go. It works with people in a church, training people, for you young families, it also works within your family and training up your children. There's not a lot of difference between pastoring a church and you husbands pastoring your family in fact your family is your first church it is your first ministry and there's no difference between the two we've lost that concept someplace and uh but that's 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 the way it is and and you'll see that today he says in verse eight just start this thing here he says for though i made you sorry with a letter that letter by the way if you don't have this note in already that letter will be first corinthians he says though i made you sorry with a letter." I do not repent, though I did repent. He's simply saying, hey, I'm sorry I had to drop the hammer on you so drastically the way I did. Because it hurt me more than it did you because I love you so much. And I, I, hate, to, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings. And I hate, to, I hate, to, I hate to, 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 to really clobber you because I really love you. I'm sorry that I had to do it. But then he says, and this is very important. But I'm not sorry that I did it because God used it to bring you back. And in that, I'm glad. You see, in every hard line you have to take, and everything that you have to hold the line biblically, it's the the biblical process. And it has to be, as we look at this, our focus today. You want to learn two things out of this. And these are invaluable if you're going to work with people or if you're a father, you're going to raise up your children. Or someday you're going to work with me in ministry here. It's invaluable. Two things. One, hard issues will demand hard solutions. There's no easy way to deal with hard problems. I wish there was. Now, the solutions are easy, but it's the complications that go in when people don't do what's right that complicate it that makes it, in most cases, if not all cases, very hard to deal with. And, and as a parent, you need to realize that hard issues with your children will demand will demand you using hard issues to deal with them or hard solutions. Uh, when a when a problem goes too far, it requires a radical solution. You know, you you uh, the the farther uh, you get from the Lord and the farther you get from God and the longer you are from God, the harder it is for you to get back, and the more complicated it becomes. The more the more things you add to it that have to be dealt with. And after a while, the reason why people can't get back is because way back when, when they had a chance to dump the load on the monkey off their back, so to speak, they didn't do it. When we play with our sin, it's like playing with handcuffs. Handcuffs are fun. Oh, look, I got a pair of handcuffs. Till you put them on and then realize that nobody at the party has a key. You took something that you played around with, and now you've shackled yourself to it, and you're stuck. That's what sin does to you. I've seen that with people with, with drug problems. And, uh, you know, they want to get right, they, they, and they, they try to do right to keep going back into it. I've seen it with alcohol. I've seen it with almost every problem that a person gets into that becomes a a problem that, uh, uh, that really uh, gets into your flesh and, and really takes hold on it. And, you know, it's a thing where we, we play with it, we play with it, and at the end of the day, I've never seen a case. The thing that will always pull these people back into it is they'll never totally break with the old friends that keep bringing them back to it. There'll always be some old gal, there'll always be some old buddy, there'll always be somebody here, and uh, it just, it's, it, it, you got to realize that the longer you go with a problem and, and the more you turn your nose at God when he tries to help you, pretty soon you're unhelpable, And you walk around in and out. You walk around drugs today, clean tomorrow, drunk tonight, sober tomorrow. And you walk around saying, why can't I get through this? Because you're stupid, that's why. And honestly, you deserve what you get because how many times has God delivered you from it? You keep walking right back into it. And you got the audacity to say, why can't I get rid of this? Years ago when I was a youth pastor, and some of you guys who were in my youth pastor back then will, will, will know this story. How many of you guys remember Morgan Maxfield? Morgan Maxfield was, was a a very rich guy. He was connected somehow with worlds of fun. And his kids was in my youth department. Morgan Maxfield was always in the limelight of Kansas City. He was toted as Kansas City's most eligible bachelor. Only problem with that is Morgan Maxfield was married. He just never told anybody. And he let it be put in, I don't you. I don't know how he got away with it. They would put him in the paper, he'd always be with some socialite, He's always, he had his own airplane, he was always flying around with some gals, you know, and guys, and partying out to Las Vegas, or Aspen, or one of those places, you know. But you know what, he was a really nice guy, I really liked Morgan, and he used to come to my Thursday night Bible studies, I think it was Thursday night back then, and he'd sit in the back, he'd drop in back there, I always liked Morgan, but he, he just could never get it together. And, uh, and he got killed in a plane crash. And uh, I'll never forget, his wife was the sweetest, I can't remember her name right now, but she was the sweetest, what was it? Marion? Marietta. Marietta. Marietta, that's right. She was one of the sweetest women ever in my life. At her funeral, Marietta is sitting there in the front row, and along with her are four of Morgan Maxfield's girlfriends. No, no. They're crying, whining. She is comforting them. <laughs> she was, she was, a, was that, that true? She was an incredible lady. And me and the pastor at that point, we were looking at that. We were laughing about it afterwards. Here's Marietta down there with her arm around him saying, It's okay. It's, they're boohooing all over the place. And, you know, and what happened was this He took off from downtown Wheeler Airport in his two engine plane. And I know this to be the story because. The pastor at that point was pretty good friends with him, and 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 he helped the family. And when they did the when the FFA did a, a, a thing on it, this is what they came back and said. And I was privy to the information, so I know it's true. He took off from downtown airport. He had another guy and two girls. They were going out to Colorado for skiing for the weekend. He got about 300 feet in the air in that twin engine plane, and the left engine threw a rod. And nothing can be more dangerous than a twin engine plane. Uh, than losing an engine, other than being in a single-engine plane and losing your engine. But anyway, <clears throat> believe it or not, it's tougher in a, in a two-engine a two than it is in a single-engine because now you've got to balance it all out because that torque is going to pull to this side instead of this side, and you only have a few seconds to figure it out. Well, Morgan crashed was killed. Plane exploded. Uh, he tried to get back to the runway. Couldn't make it. Lost too much power. Got back. When it came back later and the FAA came out and they did the investigation on it and the guy sat down and the the family asked him, what was, uh, you know, what happened? He explained what happened and they said, well, was this accident uh, preventable? Could he have done something? I'll never forget the guy, what he said, and I've remembered it all these years. He said, when you take off when you only got about 300, 400 feet under your plane and you lose an engine, there's only one thing you can do. You gotta bank that plane to the side where the engine is off point it nose down to the ground, throw the left throttle, though the engine is still working, full throttle ahead, like you're going to nose into the ground, and the lift that you create as you get closer to the ground is the only way you can pull it up. But he says not a, not one pilot in a hundred will do that because it looks like it's certain death. And it looks like that when you are already lost your thing, you want to get up, you want to get back, you want to get around, the only thing you can do is turn that rudder over, put that engine in and put that nose down to the ground and then pull out with about 50 to 100 feet and get the lift that it creates when you get that low to get you back up. In other words, Morgan couldn't do that. As good a pilot as he was, and he was a good pilot, but you see, in situations that are volatile, situations that many times are life-threatening, when you get into a very bad scenario like Morgan Maxfield did, it takes a radical movement to get out of that circumstance. And he couldn't do it. The fear of crashing, the guy said, would be overwhelming. It looks like you're committing suicide by nosing that plane right to the ground and then realizing that you got enough lift that you don't have up here that you can get up to that thing and pull it up and then use that one engine to get you back. He couldn't do it. i do not even sure he knew to do that. But he said the only thing that he could have done was that absolutely ultra-radical maneuver that would have saved everybody's life on that plane. My point is this. Severe circumstances in your life, severe problems in your life, when it gets to the level that uh, we're talking about here with Paul, where people go on and on and on and on in their sin and get to the place where it gets overwhelming, it takes hard decisions and radical movements to get them out of it. There is no easy way There was no easy way for that plane, for him to pilot that plane back. And he was only a couple of miles from the airport. Who would have thought that he couldn't have banked it around and come in? No. His weight was too much. The one engine, he didn't have time to do it. There was only one thing that would have saved his life, and he did not have the ability to be able to do that. The second thing I want you to know is that real biblical love, real biblical love, That you have for people. Like Paul has for church at Corinth. Will always require a biblical approach. Not just an easy one. Hard issues will demand hard solutions. And real biblical love will always require a biblical approach. And we have gotten to the idea today that nice, warm, syrupy, nicey, nicey. Is the biblical approach to things. It's courage to do the right thing when the right thing to do is a hard thing. And this is where pastors, ministers, parents, husband and wife, they break down. Because they can't, like my friend Morgan, make the radical maneuver. They can't force themselves to make the courageous choice because it's such a hard choice. See it in the world all the time if you're paying attention. Last week of... Or I guess it was the week before last, or a little over a week, tragedy, terrible tragedy with that Chiefs player that, that killed his girlfriend and then wound up killing himself. It's a terrible thing. But it wasn't, I think he did that on what, Friday or Saturday? Saturday. And by Monday, the first thing you read in the editorial column, well, if there were no guns, those two people would be alive. And to that I also would say this. If they'd have been the Thursday night Bible study, they probably still would have been alive. What was your point? But that's the way the world does it. Now, if you're going to take that approach, approach I'm not sure of the statistics, but I think it's somewhere around uh, last, thing, last uh, year, 25,000 people were killed by drunk drivers. Why isn't the editorial about to bring back prohibition? Probably one of them beer-drinking Christians. There's a lot of them around today. You see, no guns is the easy approach. It glosses over the real issues. And what we want today in dealing with problems, whether it's in the newspaper with something somebody did or some terrible tragedy, or tragedy in people's lives, maybe our own children, maybe our our, our family, or maybe the person you're working with, the instinctive thing to do is to find the easy approach. To sidestep all the layers that in this particular case led up to this terrible tragedy. You know, by Wednesday, it was helmet trauma. So football was the problem. And then as the week went on, it became drinking was the problem, that he was a, had a drinking problem. Then it became to develop that he had an anger problem. <clears throat> and then it talked about, well, he had marital issues. Then it was found out that he was out partying the night before and uh, and drinking and all that stuff. You see, the real dirty, nasty, hard way to deal with this is hey, what about our own personal accountability and responsibility? It's about choosing a lifestyle that puts those kinds of issues in your life and you not being able to handle them. I mean, come on. He had a live in girlfriend. He had an illegitimate child outside of wedlock. He had fame and money and status, godlike status. What do I always tell you? If it starts wrong, it ends wrong. You can take it to the bank almost every time. And that's the world's way of dealing with it, though. It's somebody else's fault. It's the guns. It's the football. It's the booze. It's the anger. It's anybody but you taking personal responsibility and accountability. You think I wouldn't like to shoot people at times? (laughs) I don't. Not that I'll talk about. Principle. Real biblical love will always meet the situation on an equal force basis. And sometimes you have to really drop the hammer. I deal with issues probably 30, 40 a week. <clears throat> I can meter them out on a scale of 1 to 10. When I have a number 1 or a number 2 or number 3 issue, which is net basically nothing, I deal with it on a 1 or 2 level. If I have a 10, 15, or 20 that's a, a, a major issue, I'll deal with it on a 10, 20, 30, whatever the issue is you you got to you gotta be able to scale it out, but you got to be able to realize that you have to have courage to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. Uh, Paul, and, and, and how he deals with this issue in this church now we're talking about, and how he dealt with it in 1 Corinthians with the whole church. And what it does, it brings them to a personal accountability that we don't always like. What we certainly always need. He's sorry to have to do it this way, but he ultimately is not sorry because it's what they needed, and most of them repented and got right. Because real biblical based love will always be based on truth, and sometimes that truth is hard to take. But you never shy away from it. You can as a pastor. You can't as a minister, and you certainly can't to you young parents as a, as, a, as a mom or a dad or parents. So remember, you can't run away from your responsibility to hold the line with truth. That is, if, when that goes, it's all gone. I've seen parents, seek to you young people now, now who've got little kids. I've seen parents do the exact same thing all through my 40-some years in a the minute. They make the exact same mistake. I've been in counseling situations with parents where they had kids that were incorrigible, kids that were in their teens, or kids that, that, they, that were, had grown up in their 20s and their 30s and they couldn't do anything with them. I've seen parents lose their kids simply because they can't hold, or maybe that's not a good choice, won't hold them accountable biblically. As a child, their son or their daughter get headed down the road, wrong path. Now, All kids have issues. You're not going to raise a perfect child. All kids go through and go through that process through problems. They all do. Every one of them. It's the parent's job to meet that on the one-to-one, five-to-five, ten-to-ten, twenty-to-twenty, like I talked about. You meet the problem with equal force. As a child, their, their son and daughter heads down the wrong road. The parents don't like it. I never met a parent that was proud of their kid being a drunk. I never met a parent that was said, Oh, you got to see my son and my daughter. Yeah, they fornicate with everybody. I'm really proud of them. I never saw that. They even get mad, they get upset. But the problem is, they will never meet the situation with equal force. They don't have the courage, I'm going to say it again, I've said it three times, I'm going to say it throughout this. They don't have the courage to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. So by the time the kid gets to be 16, 17, 18, or 19, or in some cases 20, 30, 40, whatever, they have completely lost any influence in that child's life. And at this stage, it requires to get them back, if you want them back, (laughs) in some cases maybe you don't, but if you want them back, it requires a drastic maneuver. Many times. Many times I've had sat in my office, not at home or back, go through the years. And they've said to me, well, you know, I heard what you said, Bob, and, you know, I'm not, I think what you're saying is right. But what we're faced with this issue, what I, I don't want to be too hard on them because if I am too hard on them, I'm afraid I'll lose them. Now, This is where a parent gets a disease. And it's called, I love the way they abbreviate everything. It's called P-E-B. Parental Emotional Blindness. P-E-B. Well, Bob, I just can't handle that hard route because I'm afraid I'll lose them. Ma'am, I got some terrible news for you. You have already lost them. Them living in your home is not having control of them. Guy told me one time he had a problem with his child. And he took this little boy for a ride. They were going someplace and like all little kids. Kid wants to stand up while his dad driving. He's next to him. Dad says, son, you need to sit down. Buckle up. No, I can't see if I sit down. I want to stand up and look out the window. He said, no, you don't understand. If I have an accident. And I hit somebody or somebody hits us, you're going to go through the window and you're going to be killed or you're going to be severely hurt. You need to sit down and put the seatbelt on and buckle. You can't stand up in the car. Why? I want to stand up. I'm not going to sit down. He says, son, I love you to death. Now sit down, put the thing on. Kid wouldn't do it. Finally, the dad pulled over, kid was whining at, gad whacked the kid, put him in a beat belt, started driving down on the Kid looked over and said, I may be sitting in your car, but I'm standing in my mind. <laughs> now, you got a problem with that, See? You don't really have him. You have him in your car. You don't really have him. No, no, no. You got a severe case of P.E.B. You already lost them. And at that point, your only chance is to put a biblical process in their life to get them back. And sometimes it's really hard to do. Many times, by that time, your parenting skills have been so inept through the years... They're gone now, and because you would not use boldness of speech, like Paul said, you would not demand some things of them and hold them and suffer the consequences of that, accountability and responsibility, all because you didn't want to lose them, and now you've, yet you've lost them anyhow. Listen, God's plan for parenting, God's plan for parenting and training up your children And holding them accountable by the book through the principles will be much better than your plan. A lot better than Dr. Seuss. A lot better than any child psychologist. The training up a child concept is found in the word of God and it contains the whole program. I love this time of year. Not only because the tools are on sale that I can lust after. But all my favorite movies come on. I love Boys Town with Spencer Tracy. I can see I'm speaking on Duffy ears. some of you young ones just looked up at me like I was talking from I love to go to Venus in the morning. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna ask, how many have ever seen Boys Town with Father Flanagan? Well, some of you are educated beyond belief, I love that. The rest of you need to make your trip the blockbuster this afternoon if you can even rent it. Father Flanagan was a Roman Catholic priest back in the Depression era in America. And uh, he had a burden for wayward boys. And he started a place called Boys Town. And uh, it's it's still today. I think it's in Nebraska. It's still thriving today. And uh, they made a couple of movies about it. Spencer Tracy played Father Flanagan. And Mickey Rooney played a hard-nosed kid that Father Flanagan Uh, had to reach. And at the end of the movie, it's a a heart jerker. I mean, it's like Lassie comes home. You know, it'll make you cry. It's a great movie. And whenever I feel like crying and can't force myself to cry, I used to watch this movie. It makes me cry all the time. It's like when you can't throw up. You stick your finger down your throat. You know, there's always a way to get you to do what you need to do. I love this movie. The classic line in Father Flanagan's life. And I don't don't agree with Father Flanagan on 99.999999 things that he does. He's dead now. But I did agree with this one thing he said. It was a classic line of the whole movie. Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me what it is? Don't yell it I don't see if anybody knows. know what his classic line in life was? Huh? Anybody know? He he built everything he did with the kids. And he got a lot of opposition. And his premise was, there's no such thing as a bad boy. And he built his whole concept on that. Now, that is the only thing I really agree with him on in life. I don't really think there's anything as a bad kid either. I think the problem is bad parenting. Because I know when, the, when, the, when those kids get born, they're innocent. They're pure. And their purity and their innocence of growing up and doing right isn't dependent on them. dependent on mom and dad. And it, it, it's a great movie. But just as God's program of training up kids is better than ours, just as Paul's biblical style of ministry will always be better, than man's style of ministry by the book. He says in verse 9, and this is another great truth Now I rejoice in that ye were made sorry, but you sorrowed to repentance, that you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage in us by us in nothing. Now that's a great principle. It really is. You know, sometimes in dealing with people, you have to lose everything to gain anything. You know that? The Bible says it itself, that he that loses his life shall find it. The great principle is taught. If you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. It's a hard concept for a society. It really is. Sometimes we have to lose everything. I've seen, I've seen Christians, uh, couples, have to lose everything. Because they mismanaged everything they had and got had to take them down to the foundation and lose everything to get, them, get their attention to get them back where they needed to be. It's a hard concept for a society that thinks the answer is giving everybody more. And that's the way we look at it today. We think that just giving people more is going to solve their problems, and it never has solved anybody's problems. And it certainly won't solve your problem with your children, or it won't solve the problems in a church with a pastor. Sometimes in dealing with people, they have to lose everything to gain anything. Sometimes we have to lose it all to fully grasp what we really had and what we lost. It's just a true concept of life. I think the classic shining example of that is found in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 probably one of the greatest stories that we'll use, and I'll show you all the ins and outs of it uh, after the first of the year, the story of the prodigal son. Now, I know that in a doctrinal aspect, the prodigal son is the nation of Israel. I know that. And yet, if we talk about that for a second, you know what that's such a great picture of? Because for Israel to get all that God has for them in the millennium, you know what they have to do? They have to lose everything that they ever had. And they have. And it isn't over yet with the tribulation period. You see, when he talks about that prodigal son in the first go around, it's a picture of Israel. And Israel had to lose what they had with God, and they got so miserable when they get into the tribulation period, they're going to be absolutely beside themselves, and that is exactly what God's going to use to get them back. Now, the second picture there in an inspirational application is you and me. And sometimes we have to lose everything to get back what God has for us. You see, this kid here in this story, he had to go live with the pigs. On one weekend, he was eating sirloin steak, prime rib, the servants were doing everything, and then about six months later, he's in a pig pen and he's eating pig food, pig slop. He had to lose everything he had to appreciate what he had when he lived in his father's house, but he had to learn it the hard way. He went from sirloin steak to pig slop. Man, that's radical. Now, now I'm going to tell you. I guarantee you, it was the hardest thing for his father to let that boy go when that boy came in and said, "Dad, I want my inheritance. You ain't telling me what to do anymore." Uh, You ain't telling me I can't drink booze. You ain't telling me I can't smoke dope. I ain't listening to you. You ain't going to tell me who I can hang out with. I'm going to do my own thing. Give me my inheritance and I'm gone. Father never tried to stop him. Not one place in the story did the father ever try to stop him. When he went on his way, the father never followed him. And he had the money to put 10 private eyes on him to make sure that he didn't get hurt. Never did. And when he was out there and all his friends were gone and he lost everything and he got nothing to eat and he's living in a pig pen, he didn't look up and see his father in a helicopter dropping him bread. In other words, sometimes you got to lose it all to appreciate what you had. If the father would have went after him and bailed him out and begged him to come back and, and chased him down and, 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 and stuck food to people to give it to his son, the boy would have never learned his lesson. There is a biblical process, and then there's man's process. This boy had to learn the hard way. Now, my favorite part of this story is in verse 17, where he's out there, and he's lost everything long as the money was jingling in his pocket, he had all the friends he could. But when the money was gone, the nice party clothes were gone. He couldn't buy a round of beer for people. He couldn't, he couldn't do all the things that he did. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And that's the way the world will always treat you. But that's a good thing. So now he's down in a pig pen. His buddies now are oink, oink, and orker. He's living in mud. He's eaten the same slop the pigs are eating. And the Bible says in verse 17, and when he came to himself, I want to tell you something. That boy would have never made that statement if daddy would have bailed him out all the way down the line. That boy would have never got to where he was that he came to himself and said, my father's hired servants led better than me. I would arise and go back to my father. That never would have happened if daddy would have padded the road. Daddy took the hard stand. But daddy's waiting at the gate for him. You know why? Because daddy knows something most parents don't know today. And you better learn it. Daddy was waiting for him. Daddy let him go, never bailed him out, never went after him, never made one excuse for him and let him find the hard route and held the line and said, out the door, son. You're going to live right here. This is God's house or you're on your own. And the boy said, I'm gone. But dad knew the hard line would always bring him back. You know why? How I know that? Because dad's waiting for him. When he starts coming back, dad's waiting for him down the gate. Dad knew the biblical principles and God's process was the right process. I I see the same thing with people that uh, we get, I mean, people get in tremendous financial problems today. And our aspect is to give them everything. When your kid gets in trouble, give them everything. You know, when they get this, give them this, give them that. Barter a deal with them. And I've seen, I've seen people get into tremendous, horrendous financial situations. Now, you know, it's always a tough thing. It really is. You know, I have people all the time. They'll say, well, why don't you help this situation? Or why don't you do this? And of course, they never know. I mean, we don't broadcast what we do. We're not a church that does something and says, look what we did. You do it because it's the right thing to do. But there's times that you don't do it also. I've seen people that lose their houses. I've seen people that have great debt. And yet at the same time, in many, many cases, if not most of the cases, and I know there's exceptions to it, in many cases people put themselves in those situations. Somebody said, well, we got to help so-and-so. we got to do this and we got to do that. I'm not against helping people. I help them all the time. That's what our church is for. We try to do what we can do to help people. But I want to also tell you, In most people's lives, having more money won't solve the problem. Do you know why? Because it's not how much money you have that makes it good for you or bad. It's the fact that you didn't do what's right with what you had in the first place. Adding more to it is not going to solve your problem. There has to be some kind of accountability, responsibility in physical spending. There has to be some kind of operational process... Boy, I just thought of a novel word, stewardship. You see it in our country. We're approaching probably January 1, a physical cliff. We're now at $16 trillion national debt, and it's growing. There isn't any way on this planet you're going to ever balance that budget, and by the next year or by the end of the term of this president, it's going to be over $20 trillion, more than that probably. We're going to head for a crash. Nobody in this country believes in us anymore. The banks are the people who do all the credit stuff, they downgrade us and then the, the lawmakers cascade them. It couldn't be us. Now, the government has one distinct advantage over you and me that we don't have he can just print more money. You try that, and you'll be in jail. But that doesn't solve the problem either, does it? It just inflates what you already have and what you have is more worthless because that's not the answer. The answer is, oh, two terrible, dirty words. Accountability and responsibility. The church, any church, should never subsidize people who aren't going to do right with what God gives them. And I'm all for helping people. You may not like what I'm about to say. I don't really care. Fortunately, by the province of God, both doors are open back there today so you can get out quick. I'm not paying for your mistakes. I'll help you through it. I'll sit down with you, help you do this, do that, do that. I'll, I'll, I'll try to make your kids don't suffer. I'll try to do whatever I can do. But at the end of the day, just fixing your problem will not solve anything if you're not willing to change. You can't solve problems with the same thinking that caused those problems. Amen. And when he came to himself, he said, man, this, is, this sucks. I don't like this at all. This is terrible, man. Six months ago, a year ago, I, was, I had a fine Persian robe that I wore and my servants, I had to do was clap my hands and now when I clap my hands, they're going, going in both ears and I'm eating this slop down through here. You know what? I don't like this. He never would have got there if he'd have looked up when he was so hungry and looked up when he was starting to bend and started to break and he just saw daddy and his helicopter parents. Never would have got there. Never would have got there. You see, sometimes we have to lose it all to get it back. Hey, let me ask you a question. I, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. Let's take this thing and broaden a little bit. When you got saved and you developed a relationship with God, now the end result of that relationship, we've talked about it a lot lately, was fellowship. Fellowship based on His Word. Uh, somebody, Amy asked, Amy asked a question. A Thursday night Bible study. And I told you First John chapter 1 verse 7. Walking in the light is he in the light. We have fellowship one with another. When you and I get to that point that we have fellowship now. And then you and I choose not to do right. And we get away from God. What does God do? Anybody. What does God do? Let me back, let me back up. When you build a relationship with God and you have fellowship with Him, and then you turn to go to the world and you go into sin, whatever, it be, and you, what does God do with you? He what? He breaks that fellowship. He breaks that fellowship. He breaks off that fellowship. He says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He said in verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now you're a child of God and you're out of fellowship. You know what he does? He breaks that fellowship. Now I know, and and this is hard to speak to 21st century Christians. This is why I wish I lived in the 17th century. Because God people don't get it. When he breaks fellowship, over sin he breaks fellowship you may pretend you still have a relationship you may pretend you still do by going to church you may talk nicety nicely, but as far as you and God concerned it is broken there's no blessings there's no promises anything now you get you're going to get out of some other book that somebody wrote about God you're not going to get anything from God and you're going to wind up losing your joy. You're going to wind up being miserable. Why? Why does God do that? Why does God break that fellowship to make you absolutely miserable and will not fellowship with you till you come back to him? That's why he does it. He drops the hammer in your life and in my life. And we've all had the hammer dropped. He does those things not to hurt you. He does those things to bring you back. That's what Paul's talking about here. Look at it. Look what he's saying. He breaks that fellowship for one reason. He doesn't kind of break it. He breaks it. And if you're saved today, the key here is this. If you really truly have a relationship with God, if you're truly saved, and that is the big question, then God's fellowship with you should be the number one thing in your life. And when that is gone, when it is broken, it ought to smite you to your heart. It ought to bring you to your knees. Or oh, you might blow it off for two or three weeks. You may kid yourself to thinking that you're still okay. While you're guzzling the booze or you're smoking the dope. It, it, you may fool yourself that it's all right, but if you're really truly saved and you really have that relationship and it means anything to you, it's gonna bring you sorrow unto repentance in a godly manner. There'll be no joy, there'll be no happiness. Nothing will work right for you. You're miserable. Why? Because the greatest single relationship that you ever had, you've lost. And sometimes you have to lose it. Understand what you lost. See how easy that is? You have to lose that fellowship if you're saved to realize what you had. The prodigal son. And you'll sorrow under repentance. Repentance. After a godly manner. And yet you find God's people all the time. Claim they're saved. Claim they're a child of God. And this is what bothers me. And we're not going to get into it today. We'll talk about it next week. We're carrying you on with this passage. But you see it all the time. They claim to be a child of God. And let me just say this. You claiming to be a child of God doesn't make you a child of God anymore than me buying, going out and buying a thousand tool set of craftsman tools makes me an auto mechanic. It means nothing. What proves that you and I are a child of God is when we step out of line and God drops the hammer. It brings us to our knees to a godly repentance. And if it's not there, and you continue on, and you get worse, and you laugh at it, and you don't listen to anybody, probably where you're at. Say, well, my, I know my girl saved. I know my son saved. That's P.E.B. Look at the principles. The, the, God's program always works. That when you enact a biblical process, no matter how hard it is, you've got to have courage to do the right thing, even if it's a hard thing. And I know what I'm talking about. Look at verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, that'd be 1 Corinthians, that same appraisal had made you sorry, though it for but for a season. You see, Paul's saying, hey guys, as hard as it was for me to do, to write 1 Corinthians and drop the hammer on you, I'm glad I did it because that's what ultimately God used to bring you back. And for that, I'm glad and I rejoice. I I like that last part there. For a season. You know, time out of fellowship with God can be a rough time. (laughs) I am speaking from experience. We all have been there. And and nowhere in the Bible is what Paul's saying here, especially about this thing that for a season, short time, is it better laid out in Hebrews chapter 12. And you might want to look at this or you'll use this a lot. He says, "For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son he is the for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live?" For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now here it comes. Here's what Paul was making reference to when he simply said, For a season. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. And there's no truer words that were spoken. But you see, when you have a relationship with God that's real, and you're truly God's child, then there's no woman, there's no man, there's no drug, there's no booze, there's no nothing on this planet that you're going to love more than that if you're God's child. And he says, now, no chastening for the present should be joyous, but grievous, and it will be, nevertheless... Afterward, after you come to yourself, after you realize what you lost, after you realize what you had with God and you really totally understand, you lost it. And you quit this pretending. You quit pretending. Oh, I'm right with God. Look at me. No, you're not. And you know you're not. But afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Afterwards, God says it. Two key words here, by the way. And this is your model, young parents, for your children. We don't have time to get into it today. We got the book back there, How to Train Up Your Child. That has it all in here, but two key words here. And God's pulled the rug out from all of us at one time in our life or the other. Two key words chastening and scourgeth. Find out what those two words mean in the Bible connected to your children to yourself as God's child he says for the Lord for whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth one and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth every son somebody said well I don't whip my child yes I shows <laughs> wait till you get about 18 or 19 <clears throat> Then he says in verse 8, now no chastisement, but if any be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. What he's saying here is that if you're a trace person and you get out of fellowship with God and you don't get it right, like we talked about Thursday night, there's going to come chastisement in your life. You're not going to continue on and go on in your life of sin. You're not going to continue to fornicate and going on in your world and doing what you want to do. You're not going to drink your way into heaven and and smoke your way into hell. You're not going to do that. Well, you may smoke your way into hell, but it ain't going to happen. He says, if there's no chastisement in your life, which all are partakers, then you're a bastard. You know what a bastard is? It's an illegitimate child. Verse 10 says, for they verily, uh, well, he says up here, verse 9, furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh. There's your mom and dad, which corrected us and we gave them reverence shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they, your mom and dad, verily for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit. Now when it says chastise after our own pleasure, his own pleasure, that doesn't mean they took pleasure in whipping you. That's pleasure like found in Proverbs 10.1, that an obedient son, an obedient daughter is pleasing to their father and their mother. It's a blessing to them. That's the way it's talking about. You got to put the Bible together. But he says, but he says, uh, he says, uh, but God does it for our profit. And the profit God has for us is that we be partakers of his holiness. God saved us for a purpose. He has something he wants us to do. And when he deals with us through chastisement, sometimes he drops the hammer. He meets it on a 1-1, one, 1-5 one, 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 scale too. And when he drops the hammer, sometimes God does have the courage To make the hard choice when it's the right choice, but all for the point of bringing us back. You see, the only way God got us back, when we got out of fellowship with God, and we broke that fellowship. Even though we pretend we're right and we go on, and but we just keep our lifestyle just keeps going downhill. The only way God got us back was to do whatever it took to get our attitude by breaking that fellowship and take from us all that was good so we would have sorrow and repentance. He did it because he loved us. Now that's how Paul did it to the church at Corinth. That's how God does it in your life and my life. And that's how you have to do it in ministry. You do it with your family. And you have to do it with your church. God's biblical process of responsibility and accountability of who we are and to whom much is given, much is required. And it brings us and makes us sorry after a godly manner. Sorrow under repentance. The job of the church, I've told you many, many times, is the restoration. Bringing people back. It's not always an easy process. Sometimes you have to take a hard line stand. There's a great example of this, and we'll close with this. There's a great example of this found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We talked about it when we came through that. Remember that story? Down around verse 5, 1, 2, 3, and 4. There was a man there in that church that fell into sin with his father's wife. And this man not only committed this terrible, grievous sin, but then he would not repent of it. It's a picture of today of God's people getting into some terrible sin and then not wanting to do what's right. I mean, it's one thing if you get into sin and you want to repent. It's something else. If you get into it, you don't want to repent. And that was the case of this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know what they did? They broke off complete fellowship with him. Now, why did they do that? They did that under Paul's direction, by the way. The Bible says that they turned his flesh over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, why did they do that? Because there comes a time in people's lives when you have to make the radical decision. You have to make the hard line stand. There are certain things that you have to stand against that if you don't in your family, it's going to destroy your family. And there are certain things in the church that if you don't take a stand against, it's going to destroy your church. Not everybody may like it, but if one person is saved going down that same road, I don't give a flip who likes it. Especially if it's biblical. Biblical. They broke off fellowship with him. No birthdays, no Christmas, no special days. They didn't fall into the stupidity of many of God's people today who have that terrible disease that parents get. Well, we're breaking fellowship with you. We're not having anything to do with you. You're in sin, and this is absolutely wrong, and we're done with you. We're having Christmas dinner at 6 o'clock, so you can come on over. How stupid is that? No, there's no birthdays, no Christmas, no special days. Well, I'm breaking fellowship with you so you'll get right. The fact that you hold the line and have no fellowship or relationship is exactly what God does to you and me that brings us back. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, because they did that, guess what? This guy repents. He never would have repented if they wouldn't have held the line and dropped the hammer. But P.E.B. is spreading. Hey, radical, deep-seated problems will always require radical solutions. They'll never be an easy way out of them. And the longer you permit it to go... The more you shortcut the circuit, the more you don't hold them accountable, the more you fudge halfway, the more you don't take the hard line. And when you don't follow the biblical process, all you do, all you do is cut short the book and enable them in what they're doing. Because nobody will stand up for it. Is there not anybody on this planet? Is there not anybody in Christianity today? I'm not talking about preachers. I'm talking about moms and dads. Is there not anybody on planet earth that will not stand up in their family for what this book says? No, there's not. We all want the easy route. We all want the path of least resistance. We don't want confrontation. So instead of having one confrontation and dealing with it, we live a life of confrontation don't do what the book says. Radical issues demand radical choices. Sometimes when he took that plane off and he lost that engine, if he'd have rammed them, set those throttles forward, rammed that rudder to the left, put that nose in the ground and picked up enough speed and had the courage to lift it off, he'd be alive today. It's the book. I should have saved this for Christmas. (laughs) True biblical love will always meet the issue with equal force through biblical principles. Real biblical love will always require a biblical approach in any problem of accountability and responsibility. And in most cases, it's not going to be pleasant and it's not going to be easy. But it's right. <laughs> I deal with people, you know, I have couples come over for marital counseling all the time and you know, they'll sit down and they'll start telling me their issues, you know, and going through it. And, you know, I, I've heard it a thousand times. I just kind of act interested until I get it out because I already know, know where I'm going with it. And almost without exception. They'll either she or he or sometimes both of them after they laid out their heartthrob, you know, and their ache and their agony and who did this and all the stuff and everybody, it's her fault or his fault and everybody else's fault. uh, You know, when they're all done, they all look at me and they say, well, look, we dumped a lot on you. But, you know, is there anything we can do? I always answer them the same way. I say, you know what? I appreciate your honesty, and you guys have been really forth, uh, forthright with me, and I want to help you any way I can. And I'll tell you what, I'll, if you're committed, I'll commit to help you. But you know what? The real question is not is there anything to do, because there's always something that can be done. The real question is will you do what you have to do? Will you change in your life what has to change? Will you get out of your life what needs to leave? Will you break off and get out whatever needs to go that this thing can get fixed? And if the answer is no, I won't, or I want to fix my problem, but I want to keep some of this, it's never going to work. There's never a question: Is there anything we can do? The question is: Will you do what you need to do? And in most cases, the answer is no. Edmund Burke was a British, uh, somewhat of a a, a writer and author. More out, he was a philosopher. And I don't think he was a saved man, but he said something one time that I've never forgotten that I've looked at in, 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 in people's lives. I've looked at in families' lives. I've looked at in churches. I've looked at in my own life. And there's been times when I hesitated to drop the hammer and I had to repent later. And it was this little phrase that always comes back and sticks in my mind. You know what he said? He said, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Evil triumphs in churches when leaders and pastors won't hold the line. Evil triumphs in families when mom and dad won't hold the line. Wouldn't make too many of these, Scott. I don't think we're going to sell a lot of them today. Now today you got some great tools. Some great tools to work with and dealing with people and with issues, but they have to start in our own lives first. I, I look at what I do on on Sunday morning, and I mean, you may look at it totally different. You may not even catch what I'm doing, maybe not even want to catch what I'm doing. But uh, what I what I look at is I'm, I'm, I build people, and I I, I want you to I, I harp on biblical principles. I've made many of you who are going to be part of the, or all of you who are going to be part of the people ministry, write down and put in your Bible principles. I force you to do that. You know why? Because in dealing with people and working in the ministry or dealing with your family, you have to build your library of, of principles. You know, it's like being a lawyer and you've got a case coming to trial. You'll go to the law library and you'll probably pick out, eight or nine different books that are, go along with the issues you've got to try to present or what you've got to try to defend or what you've got to try to do. You'll find case law. You'll find what state law, what federal laws are. You'll get all the material laid out in front of you, and then you'll prepare your defense or whatever you're going to do based on what you know, based on the fact, but based on what case law says and through the law book that you've got, and you form yourself up from that. Is that hard to understand? I, I saw you guys do it, Bubba. You you fixed that bathroom down there the other night. And where's Daigle? That he, he, he's mad and left. <laughs> well, he must have just like normal. He left his Bible behind. But anyway, <clears throat> <laughs> these guys head up my pretty much. It just developed into the all the construction stuff down there that we want to do. And Kevin works with them. And and I and I and I never even thought about this, Bubba, till I and Daigle. It's, Boy, you've lost a lot of weight. It's hard to even see where you're at today. I never even thought about it till this morning. I went up to check on Daigle, you know, and couldn't find him then. I don't know where he was, but I went down to Bubba, and Bubba's down there doing his stuff, and I looked out in the hallway. Bubba was fixing the toilet, painting the walls, scraping it first, taking the stool off, taking the thing off and putting another thing on it and bolting it back down and painting everything, Right? Dago was upstairs painting one room, doing another, and I I watched. When I watched Bubba out there, I walked out in the hallway. Never even thought about it, Bubba, until this morning. I walked out there, and I thought, wow, he had a job to do, this bathroom. He backed his truck up, brought every tool that he needed to do the job to get it done. And when you looked out in the hallway, there was this, there was that, there was this, there was that. And when you looked there, you saw a menagerie of tools that were all conducive to the job he had to do. Now, if I'd have said to Bubba, Bubba, they got a leak on the roof, he would not have taken his toilet seal to the roof. At least I hope he wouldn't have. (laughs) He went back to his truck, probably got another set of tools that fixed the roof, and he went to the roof. Dago I went up there, and he had all his paintbrushes, he had his rollers, he had his little cut-in things, he had everything he needed. If I'd have said to Dago, we need to go down and do this, he would have taken those back to his truck, he'd have got everything else that he needed, and he would have set that thing up for another job. My point is this. Whatever job God gives you to do, whatever job God calls you to do in this church, whatever job God has for you to do, it'll take a different set of tools for every job you do. My job is to get you the tools and teach you how to use them. Your job is to take the tools and do the job. Now, what's hard with that? That's what we do. That's exactly what we do. You lay out the scenario of people's problems. The counseling scenario with your toolbox of tools, biblical principles that when this problem is different from this problem, that's different from this problem, and different from this problem, you open up your box and Baba didn't say, well, I'm going to fix this toilet. I need a 30-foot ladder. He took exactly what he needed to do the job because all the tools. Now, he could have had a 30-foot ladder. He didn't need that tool in that job, but he has all the tools. You need to have all the tools and you have the ability to use the different tools in different scenarios. Master craftsman. The toilet broke. The roof leaks. The paint peels. So you take the tools to fix whatever needs to be fixed and in that same token, people break. People get into problems. People have issues. People make mistakes. People do dumb things. People get into bad marriages. People get into bad relationships. You got to have the tools for every specific job. And sometimes in all of that, folks, if you really want to man up and be in the ministry, we tell you something you better get a hold of. You better find someplace within you the courage to do the right thing when it's the hard thing. Because that's all that'll work, the biblical process. Let's pray, Father.